Morning Glory, America, Bonjour, Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hillsdale College, the Lantern of the North. Each week sends either Dr. Larry Arn, president of that great college, or one of his colleagues, or sometimes both, to this radio show to talk about things that are old and important, things that are enduring and inspiring. The Hillsdale Dialogues date back to 2013 on the Hugh Hewitt Show. They are all collected at HughForHillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale are found at Hillsdale.edu. This week, we're blessed to have both Dr. Larry Arn and Dr. Kenneth Calvert. Now, I must tell you about Dr. Calvert. He's a graduate of Wheaton College and of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's also got a degree from Harvard University, but most important of all, he's a Red Hawk. He's got his Ph.D. from Miami University of Ohio. So there is some common sense and great learning there lodged in southern Michigan. Dr. Calvert, welcome back. Even though you brought Dr. Aaron with you, it's great to have a Buckeye-educated scholar with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Aaron, I don't know if you heard the caller, annual caller day yesterday. I had 54 callers. We keep track. And many of them delighted in your presence on this show, and I was surprised, but they enjoy that you are so awful to me. Yeah, yeah, well, of course they do. And, you know, for that matter, we've got Calvert on here from Ohio as an affirmative action thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the beginning of a new series, and it's not Plutarch. We've done Plutarch before. It's broader than Plutarch. It's about, really, Thomas Carlyle. And Hugh Hewitt's agreement with Thomas Carlyle. In 1840, friends, Thomas Carlyle published on Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History, in which he states, quote, Universal history, the history of what man has accomplished in this world, is at bottom the history of the great men who have worked here. They were the leaders of men, the great ones, the modelers, patterns, and a wide series of creators of whatsoever the general mass of men contrived to do or attain. All things that we see standing accomplished in the world are properly the outer material result, the practical realization and embodiment of thoughts that dwelt in the great men and sent into the world the soul of the whole world's history. It may be justly considered were the history of these. Now, of course, we know that includes great women, and on the campus of Hillsdale College, there is a statue to Margaret Thatcher, for example, Dr. Arne. But what do you think generally, before we turn to Alexander, of Carlyle's theory of history, often referred to as the great man theory? Uh, well, there's a, I agree with it, of course. I study Winston Churchill. Um, the, uh, Churchill wrote this wonderful essay called Mass Effects in Modern Life, and he begins with the story... The question, is the history the story of great men, which, and he, he reduces that. He, he, great men stand for human choice. Do, are we able to make choices that affect our world and our destiny? And Churchill thought that was a question all his life, uh, because the great power of modern science made us so powerful we were overcoming ourselves. And uh, he, he sought refuge in, in the, the fact that if you just look at the life of Napoleon, he, he names that as an example, but his own life is an example. Uh, what if he'd been killed, you know, in some accident when he was a kid? And he says that that little chance would change everything. And that means that the great art of the great statesman is somehow related to chance, that is to say, things in nature 
are not so rigid that interventions outside nature can't alter them, and the human freedom consists in that space. So uh, Churchill thought that this question was a very serious question about our ability to act independently in the world. And, and Dr. Calvert, how do you expand on that? Because I, I have a list. I try to make a list, and I'm working with the great colleagues that you have up there to establish who we will cover in this. And I, my hardcore half dozen are, are Alexander, Caesar, Jesus, Luther, um, uh, uh, Lincoln, and Churchill. And there are other great men, obviously, and great women. Well, the list will expand. It's much bigger than Plutarch, who worked hundreds of years ago. But what is your general theory of the great man theory of history? Well, my my approach to it would be, look, we have both uh, the great man um, and the great woman who have done, you know, remarkable things uh, to advance uh, humanity, to advance um, uh, faith, all of these things. But you also have uh, the opposite, uh, the, you know, the great anti-hero, um, uh, the, the evil person, you know, what had happened, what would have happened if Hitler had died as a youth? And um, again, I think as Dr. Arn was mentioning, you know, there's a, there's an interplay of free will here, of of uh, you know events uh, taking place, and I think that as a historian, you have to look back with some awe. And historians, of course, talk about this all the time um, about the rise of these people and the rise, particularly of the great person of the of the hero who emerges and shapes uh, their world. As, as we talk about Alexander the Great, for instance, um, I think that he had no idea um, how much he was actually going to shape world history uh, from Rome in the West to India in the East. This man, in his conquest of Persia, you know, transformed world history, and um, he could not have known that. And so, you know, there's a there's an element of free will, and then this element of this great hand uh, of, the, of the divine that one has to think about, I think, ponder at least, as one is thinking about history and, and what that has to do with uh, with the way the world has come about and come it, to be. If there had not been an Alexander, and there are many things to talk about him, there would not have been an Alexandria. And had there not been an Alexandria, there would not have been a merging of the Platonic and the Christian. I mean, there are so many things that would not have happened had there not been an Alexander, which is why I asked to begin here. But of course, before we dive into him in the, in the next three segments, I'm skipping over, I'm skipping over Moses. I'm skipping over Abraham. I'm skipping over Darius and Cyrus. I mean, there are a lot of people before Alexander, right? Right, right. Yeah. Alexander uh, met the Persian empire, which had, you know, coming to being in the 6th century B.C. with Cyrus the Great, a remarkable great man himself. Um, and so it all builds upon one another. And uh, one thing I tell my students when we talk about Alexander the Great, he, he ended up, um, you know, destroying the Phoenician culture, which left Carthage all alone uh, as a Phoenician city in the Mediterranean um, and facing off with Rome. Uh, Rome would never have come to power. Uh, if Alexander hadn't done that. And so each um, each successive great man, uh, great uh, man in, in history, leads to another. What, where, what do you think about beginning this series, Dr. Arm, with Alexander? Uh, well, he fits your model. Uh, of course, I never know what the heck we're doing here, but uh, <laughs> nor do you. What, but, uh, why should this day be different from any day in Hillsdale? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, 
Well, so here's here's the thing about him. He's it's, it's clear in his life as in anyone that everything about him, every big thing that happened in his life, was shaped by his presence there, and they were world historic things. He was his father was a tremendous man who made That's Macedon a great power, and on the other hand, he was a multiple of his father in effectiveness. And he, you know, in the end, he didn't conquer all of Egypt. Maybe he would have been defeated. But finally, even the tremendous generals and troops that he had with him all the way across, you know, to the middle of India from, from leaving from Greece, think of that distance, and to move it to, over it by land, fighting superior numbers everywhere he went, even finally, his troops and his generals gave out on him. They just wouldn't go any farther. And uh, I've always believed that's in part because if you're going to conquer all of Persia, that's understandable to the Greeks because they've been fighting Persia off and on for a long time. But when you get beyond Persia, what the heck is even out there? And if we go this far, when will we ever stop? Well, I don't know that he would have ever stopped. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, so he just changed everything around him, and he was apparently, I mean, remember, the sources on this are not, you know, as rich as they are for the later Romans. Uh, this is a long time ago, but they're pretty good and, you know, a lot better than than Homer. I mean, you know, who was Homer and all that's kind of hard to say. But uh, he he was apparently a tremendous military commander and a tremendous warrior and you know fought in the middle of the line with his soldiers and turned the battles himself so it's an extremely consequential individual you know i mean think of anthony and cleopatra cleopatra is a descendant of one of his generals who got the rule of egypt because he went with that is that is remarkable. I didn't know that. Uh, when we come back, we'll introduce you to this amazing figure, Alexander, and to the irony of the fact that he has been educated by the greatest scholar, if we want him to go there, that we know of. Stay tuned to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, we go high, America. Hillsdale.edu, Hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at Hillsdale.edu. All of the wonderful courses are available for free there. You can sign up for their amazing courses anytime you want. You can get Imprimus sent to you monthly in the old-fashioned snail mail way. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues that I've been conducting since 2013 are available for Hugh for Hillsdale.com. You can contribute to the prospering of Hillsdale and the Hillsdale Charter Schools everywhere at Hillsdale.edu. Along with Dr. Arn today, we have Dr. Kenneth Calvert because he is an expert on Alexander, and we are beginning the Great Leaders series, great men and women who have bent history, because it's a great series to do in an election year because leadership matters. Dr. Calvert, if you would give us the short introduction to Alexander and pause, if you will, on the consequences of his having spent two years being tutored by the man that Larry Arn says authored the greatest book ever, The Ethics, uh, Aristotle. Right. Alexander, as Dr. Arn had mentioned, was raised uh, under his father, Philip II. And his father made sure that his son uh, was not only trained in military pursuits, but also uh, was well-educated. He had a number of tutors, um, three or four tutors. And among them, of course, was Aristotle. 
with whom Alexander studied from the age of 13 to about 15. So for about two years, uh, he studied with Aristotle, which must have been an amazing and remarkable time. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to tell in the material that we have of Plutarch and Arian and uh, a number of sources, you know, how much Alexander learned from Aristotle. But um, I think just one example is that Alexander, when he left uh, in his invasion of Persia, um, this was not just a military expedition. Uh, he took botanists, he took historians, he took poets, he took uh, a whole uh, you know, train of uh, scholars with him. It was like a traveling Hillsdale College, frankly. Uh, he took uh, with him eastward into the Persian Empire to study everything that they were about to come across, as well as to write about it, write about the epic struggle that was about to take place. Um, Do- Dr. Arn, l- let me ask you to reflect just for what do you think it means for a great warrior, leader, statesman to be educated by a philosopher on the order of Aristotle? Well, uh, our friend Victor Hansen has written a book in which he argues that, you know, Sherman and Patton and uh, Epimenides, that they were great in part because they were so well educated and they had read in particular philosophy. And uh, uh, he, he uh, so think what it is to be, you know, if you sit down in Aristotle, with Aristotle, you're sitting down with one of the three people who revolutionized human thought. Right, I mean, among the mortals who did it, then there's Jesus. We're going to talk about him. But what did they do? They they did a simple thing. They adopted the habit of trying to find out what things are in their essence and in their order and hierarchy, not things of the Greeks and things of the Persians, but what are things? You know, universal philosophy. What is a thing? And so uh, when when Alexander heads east, he has an equipment that the Persians never fully got, right? Which is, whatever is right, whatever we're going to do, that's right before some tribunal that transcends, you know, our laws and our ways. And he was, you know, Alexander was adaptable. He adopted some of the Persian systems of rule because the Greeks had never ruled anything like the Persian Empire. And, you know, he, you wouldn't call him a great statesman in establishing a working empire. He didn't live long enough to do that, and it didn't work very well for a long time. It never worked very well as a whole. But, uh, but he, he brought this idea with him, and that is also the idea that uh, Ken made, at the, Dr. Calvert made at the beginning of this, that that's the idea that also conquered Rome. And so to, to the West... The Romans and to the East, Alexander brought Greek philosophy to the world. And when we come back, we are going to introduce you to Philip and how Macedonia relates to the Peloponnesian War and how this all got started. Dr. Kenneth Calvert is going to lay it all out for you the basics which may inspire you to particular biographies of Alexander. 
as we begin our leader series on the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu. Don't miss a minute of it or hughforhillsdale.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. to Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, all things Hillsdale, are collected at hillsdale.edu. Become a supporter of the college. Become educated by the college. They have great online courses. All of our conversations with Dr. Arn and his colleagues, uh, many and, and varied, including Dr. Ken Calvert, who joins us today, are all collected at hughforhillsdale.com for your binge listening and home educating uh, pleasure. Uh, Dr. Calvert, um, to set up Alexander the Great in 10 minutes is hard, but you have to kind of set up the Peloponnesian War and who Philip is in Macedonia. Do you count Alexander a Greek? Uh, well, yes, I do. Um, now, in, in his day, uh, the other Greeks would have questioned that. Uh, Macedonia, at the time of his father, Philip II, was seen as something of a, of a backwater province. Um, and it was very disunified. And what what Philip uh, II did was to unify um, Macedonia under his rule more solidly, um, and then went on to really create a remarkable region dedicated uh, to Greek classical culture, especially Athenian culture. Um, Philip had a high regard uh, for Athens. And this is where, when you talk about a great man like Alexander the Great, you know, his context, his father, the people around him, his mother, Olympias, had a powerful influence on his success. Um, Alexander was very much shaped by this, and uh, Philip II was remarkably successful, not only in picking up the pieces after the Peloponnesian Wars, where the, the Greeks had fought themselves into exhaustion, uh, but created a, um, or began to create a new order around the Corinthian League, and Philip II as their as uh, their hegemon, their leader, and Alexander um, inherited that on the death of Philip II. Would, would Alexander Philip, have been able to read Thucydides? Would he have been able to understand what had what carnage had had followed war and why war occurred? Yes, he definitely uh, was was able to read. In fact, uh, he kept uh, he had a, a copy of Homer. Um, uh, of the Iliad that Aristotle had commented upon, and um, uh, Alexander kept that with him all the time, kept it under his pillow, in fact. Uh, He definitely had a small library that he took with him. Had he studied uh, mythology and the great writers of his day? Absolutely. So, to summarize, what did Alexander do that makes him the first of the great men of history that people in the West normally refer to? Well, I think that, um, you know, the first thing he did was military. He conquered the greatest empire of the day, Persia, which stretched from Syria in the west down to Egypt and all the way eastward to Bactria, which is modern-day Afghanistan and India. He conquered a massive empire. And then second of all, um, in the midst of all of that, he planted Greek culture everywhere he went. Uh, and of course, you know the greatest example you mentioned at the at the at the beginning of our interview, Alexandria in Egypt, uh, became a remarkable center for science and learning. Um, so I think when people look at Alexander, they look at him in a variety of of you know contexts and what kind of success he had, both military and intellectual. Um, so yeah, uh, you know Julius Caesar uh, worried uh, when he got to the age of 33 that he had not equaled Alexander. And, you know, there we have one of our early uh, leaders 
comparing themselves with this great Macedonian and hoping to somehow, you know, be an equal to him. So, Dr. Arm, when you go out on one of your talks, as you will do for Hillsdale College all across the country, and I always voice those, and they're always thronged with a thousand people. If a hand goes up and they ask you, just standing there, why does Alexander matter? What do you say? Well, I agree with what Ken, Ken said mostly, but you have to remember the that Greece, the, the the phenomenon of Greece and its power and its strength to the current day influence, it actually comes from an additional place than the Greek philosophers, which is the most dramatic and important thing. Homer is the other thing, right? Homer is warlike and pious, and there's an old strain of political philosophy present in the Platonic Dialogues that Socrates is in contest with Achilles to be the great hero. What kind of man is the highest kind of man? The thinking man or the action man? Well, Alexander studied with the greatest, you know, one of the two greatest students of Socrates, but he carried Homer under his pillow. <laughs> so <laughs> all of Greece went to war, and that was bad news for the people who fought him. Did he innovate, yeah. Dr. Calvert, in terms of military tactics, or was he simply faster? Because speed kills. Dr. Hansen, Victor Davis Hansen, always talks about Sherman and Patton sharing in common speed. Was, mm-hmm. was Alexander, because of his lightning-like movements, or, or was he a genius in tactics? He was he was excellent in tactics. He was excellent as a leader, as a general, fighting uh, you know alongside and with his men against the enemy. He he was very very quick uh, to respond to um, you know uh, the situation on the battlefield, and he took on much much larger Persian armies, which were full of conscripts and mercenaries, very large and ponderous and slow moving. And so, you know, Alexander had the love of his troops, you know, great morale, um, and just a very, very sharp, bright man, and and fearless, just fearless. He would jump into the fray. So you should mention heavy cavalry, right? In yeah. the in the classic Greek phalanx, the ones that fought at Thermopylae and in Plataea and and in the Peloponnesian War, cavalry was not very important. They were sort of scouts, and they protected the flank. Uh, Alexander, following his father, formed a heavy cavalry unit, including the companion unit, which was his unit, and he was on a horse. And the horses had some armor on them, and the horses were fast. And so he would often uh, occupy a place on the flank with his cavalry, and they would go at these foot soldiers on the other side with great strength and speed and uh and they would and and they would break right well once that and what there were four really big battles i mean huge battles and many smaller battles well people got used to what alexander would do but the cavalry could move around they could turn and wheel and go back toward the middle or all the way to the other side and so you didn't know where they were coming and it disarranged the enemy. And he was personally in the middle of that, right? That's right. one of the reasons he was so important on the battlefield. So the question becomes uh, uh, not only what he accomplished, but what did he set out to do, Dr. Calvert? Why did he go in search of worlds to conquer and successfully do so? 
Well, this is a you know a long conversation that that, that historians have had uh, for for millennia now, and you know Philip the the second is actually the one who first planned an invasion, and then Alexander picked up and used that. And um, one of the first things that Alexander did when he landed uh, in Asia Minor was to go to the old site of Troy and sacrifice to the gods. And so there's there's an element of the religious in this that this is um, uh, uh, you know a religious campaign of sorts. There is the Homeric in that. You know he's returning to Troy, the Greeks against you know the Easterners. Um, he uh, is, is seeking vengeance. There's a part of that. The the Persians had sacked Athens, and so there was a a uh, a sense of vengeance against Persia. Uh, but also there's the idea of um, the Greek, the civilized Greek versus the barbarian uh, versus the non-Greek. And there is that element. And, you know, you have to call it a, a, a cultural war of sorts. But finally, I think, and, and probably maybe most important for Alexander, is that um, he had been raised to believe that he was, um, you know, uh, a new Hercules um, he he stopped in Egypt at the Oracle of Siwa, which confirmed to him that he was to conquer the world, and he viewed himself as someone who was destined uh, to be a great man and to to conquer the world. Um, it was it was a great disappointment um, to him when he got to the Indus River Valley, as Dr. Arn had mentioned, and his men just said, "We're done. We're done marching. Uh, we need to get, we need to rest and we need to go home." And, um, you know, Alexander's argument was, well, we haven't conquered the world yet. But uh, he was so he was a bit disappointed uh, in that. But, you know, a variety of of reasons why this took place um, and what was it for Alexander? I think it was uh, this idea of um, stretching Greekness, Greek culture, Hellenic culture as far as he could. Uh, 30 seconds, Dr. Arndt. Did he think he was doing a good thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, because you, you don't mistake one thing. He he was high-minded. He was generous. He was moderate. He really loved to conquer huge spaces. When we come back, what do we need to know or learn from the example of Alexander? Because there is no reason to study history unless you're going to take something away with you from it. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue, concluding our first of many conversations about great leaders with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Ken Calvert, Dr. Ken Calvert. Miami of Ohio, Ph.D., so he knows what he's talking about. Our expert on Alexander, he teaches ancient history at the wonderful school that is Hillsdale College in Michigan. Uh, Dr. Uh, Calvert, how, first of all, additional reading for those who wish to be guided. Where would you send them if, they, if you've teased them into a deep interest of Alexander beyond Plutarch? Right. Um, a scholar, 1970s, so a little bit dated, but very readable. Excellent scholar, Peter Green. Alexander of Macedon. Um, this last year, uh, Anthony Everett also produced uh, a biography, uh, Alexander, His Life, and then he adds on, and Mysterious Death. So he has a little teaser on that uh, title. Um, uh, Anthony Everett, of course, uh, wrote a great biography of Caesar Augustus, 
and he's done some really good work with Alexander. So I would say Peter Green and Anthony Everett. And to your freshmen who arrive at Hillsdale and, and you begin to talk to them about Alexander, uh, if you're at all like me, you, you tease why you're doing it. Uh, why do you tell them you're studying Alexander? Well, I tell them uh, really – I, I, I cover much of what we have discussed here, that this is a man who is going to, by spreading Greek culture, by spreading all the science, the literature, the philosophy um, throughout a, a huge swath of the world, is going to really lay the foundations for the future was, and, and, and for Western culture. He was pretty bad at succession planning, though, right? Right, right. He he made no plans at all, and um, uh, upon his death, uh, a number of people claimed to be his successors. And what happened was, you had forty years of, of war among them. But what's what's very interesting is that those wars themselves set up um, uh, a, a geopolitical situation in which Rome was actually able to spread eastward. Uh, because of their inability to uh, come to any kind of terms. And uh, there you have you know, another, another step in this history that Rome comes to power uh, because of the successors of, uh, of Alexander. Dr. Arn, a big question. Is it fated to great leaders to be really terrible succession planners? I'm thinking Lincoln didn't plan on getting shot, obviously, and Churchill didn't plan on losing the election after the war had finished in Europe and was ongoing in Japan. But Napoleon, I mean, all of the the people who are consequential, they do not seem to have thought very much about the next generation of leaders behind them. Well, you know, whether, whether they did or not, sometimes they did. Genius is not heritable. <laughs> and you don't know it till you see it in action. Uh, I want to say another. I want to recommend another source to our listeners. Uh, they should read the Rudyard Kipling short story, "The Man Who Would Be King," or mm. watch the movie with Sean Connery and Michael Caine, because Great the movie. the plot of the story is that Alexander. This is really great. Brought Freemasonry, you know, which is you know a, a, a thousand years later, to Afghanistan, and that leads them. They, 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 uh, Sean Connery, uh, they, they, some priests strip off his tunic. He's been hit by a sword in battle, by an arrow, and he, anyway, they think he might be a god, and they want to test it. They're going to plunge a, a javelin into his breast, but they strip it off, and they see uh, uh, a Masonic symbol. And then they all bow down, and they take him over, and they kept saying, Secunda, Secunda, it means Alexander. And uh, and so this now, what does it mean? Rudyard Kipling is the poet of the British Empire, and he in that novel, it's funny, is tying the British Empire to Alexander. How interesting! I don't know if you if you are a reader of Stephen Pressfield. I'll I'll end on this. Oh, there, uh, he's great. He's great, and he wrote a novel of Alexander, uh, The Virtues of War, that persuaded me that all attempts to conquer Afghanistan were proven by Alexander and ought to have been read by the British, the Russians, and the Americans to be <laughs> inevitably a disaster. Uh, Kenneth okay. Calvert, do you have a comment on that? Well, yeah, that that region used to be called Bactria. That was Bactria in Alexander's day. And, yeah, he had, uh, you know, a two-year campaign in Afghanistan, and uh, it did not end well in the long term. Um, and he ended up marrying a princess, a Bactrian princess, Roxanne, in order to attempt to solidify his power in that region. Uh, but that was, uh, even for the Persian Empire, 
uh, before Alexander. Bactria was a rubble too far. We could say a bridge too far, but it was a rubble too far. Uh, Last word to you, Dr. Arn, the virtues of war. Uh, Alexander declared victory and went home. Is that what Donald Trump is doing? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the person, the, the person in American history, leaving out of account Trump, who I think also understands this, who knew how to fight in Afghanistan is Donald Rumsfeld. Because right. what he did was send some people in there and put the weight of our Air Force and our special forces behind some factions and turn the war. And then his plan was to get the heck out of there. And, uh, that you know, so that was, you know, he's going to go get the Taliban and go, and they did. They killed a guy who many of the people who planned the 9-11 attacks. But the point is, to try to rule Afghanistan, the Afghans can't do that. Uh, true, true, <laughs> true. Alexander the Great, Doctor, so much. To, uh, Ken, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And thank you, Ken Calvert. And thank you, Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogue takes a week off next week, and then we'll be back in two with our next leader. You'll have to tune in to find out who that is. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thanks in advance to Kirch. 